Today's episode is sponsored by Norse Tradesmen, a company that provides premium Norse replicas and genuine oxhorn drinking horns. Carefully handcrafted using only the finest natural materials, Norse Tradesmen offers a vast selection of historical replicas from the Viking Age. Weapons such as the bearded battle axe, hellbeater, and eldbrotty swords, and boar's head knife are drawn from historical sources rooted in Viking history and mythology. Authentic attire, such as tunics, belts, battle horns, and bone pendants, and beard rings are made of high-quality materials, uniquely handcrafted using natural materials. Authentic horn tankards and ale horns, linked to the Norse traditions of family and fellowship, can be purchased with two-day delivery via the website norsetradesmen.com. Be sure to follow the link in the description of this episode and save 20% off your order by using the coupon code VIKING. More than a thousand years after the end of the Viking Age, the tales of Norse gods continue to fascinate us. But what are the popular misconceptions surrounding the mythology of the Vikings? In pre-Christian Scandinavia, were some deities more important than others? What did Norse myth mean to the Vikings, and how did it affect the way they lived? In today's episode, we'll be answering these questions and a host of others with my guest, Martin Whitock. Martin has written numerous educational and history books including titles on Viking and Anglo-Saxon history. He's been a consultant for the BBC, English Heritage, and the National Trust, and has written for Medieval History Magazine and other archaeological journals. He's the co-author of a brilliant book titled Tales of Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends, which you can find via the link in the description of this episode. Without further ado, Here's my conversation on all things Norse myth with Martin Widdock. Martin Whittock, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, you know, Martin, I find Norse myth and legend endlessly fascinating. And of course, you've written a book about that very subject, Tales of Valhalla, which we will be getting into later today on the podcast. There's so many jumping off points that, you know, I could start our conversation off with today. But I think perhaps the first one that I'd like to bring up is a question, what did Norse myth mean to the Vikings? How and why did it affect the way they lived, as far as one can tell? The myths helped explain key features of their world and their societies. 
their world is reflected in the origin stories of the cosmos. For example, gods licked into existence from the ice by a mythical cow, the idea of frost giants living in remote mountainous countryside, the same for trolls and dwarves in mountain caves. One can see, one can visualise the topography of Scandinavia and of Iceland reflected in these origin stories. And also the mythology provided a link for them between the worlds of the seen and the unseen. So we have the, the ash tree known as Yggdrasil, biggest of all trees, and its roots supporting it, three roots supporting it of great length. One grows into the realm ruled by the gods. Uh, one grows into the land of the frost giants. The third grows deep into Niflheim. And there we have the dragon Nidhogg gnawing at the roots of the tree. The third root extends far into heaven and another well lies beneath it, the well of weird. Gods hold court there. Uh, every day they, they ride that place over the bridge Bifrost, which links heaven and earth. Uh, and we have near there the hall where three maidens live, who are the Norns. And, and other Norns visited each person when they were born to shape the course of their lives. Good Norns shaping the destiny of people whose lives turn out well. Evil Norns shaping the destiny of those who experience misfortune. And so we can see the kind of connection between the world of people and other imagined realms of being reflected in the cosmology. We can also see little hints of politics, too. A poem called The List of Rig, in which a, a god called Rig creates the three different classes of mankind, creates them as thrall, slave, farmer and lord. Well, you can kind of see where that's going. That, that's an explanation as to why things are as they are. And it's interesting that King, who emerges at the end of the poem, is marked out by his knowledge of runes and his relationship with the gods. And so it's kind of an assertion of the divine origins of contemporary kingship, which probably reflects an actual ideology rooted in pagan Viking Age concepts. And archaeology shows us that these Norse myths played a very significant part in people's lives as they made sense of their world. We find Thor's hammers used as pendants across Scandinavia and in Britain. We see birds accompanying a mounted warrior, possibly Odin and his ravens, on decorated Vendel-style helmets unearthed in Sweden. We see an amulet in the shape of a woman carrying a drinking horn. Is she a Valkyrie from Orland in Sweden? We see a carving of Odin's eight-legged horse, Schlipnir, from Gotland. We see dramatic scenes illustrating Odin's fight with the wolf at Ragnarok, the end of the world, carved on a cross from Kirk Andreas on the Isle of Man in the UK. We see Thor fishing for the Midgard serpent on a standing cross at Gosforth in Cumbria, which also seems decorated with a Valkyrie. We see Regin forging Sigurd's sword and Sigurd roasting the dragon's heart on another stone cross from Halton in Lancashire. And they all echo themes found in the later written myths and collaborate something of what they reveal about Norse beliefs in the Viking Age and their importance to people. Runes, for example, revealing religious beliefs and a belief in magic have been found cut into things such as bone and weapons. So we can see that the myths helped explain something of the world in which they lived. And then they lived out something of this mythological understanding in that world. So we see the world of the seen and the imagined intimately connected. Very fascinating indeed. And I think as students of the Viking Age and Viking studies, we're seeking to learn more about the Norse people. We should, of course, apply ourselves to learn about their myths and legends, which obviously, as you've laid out, impacted the way they lived their lives. 
I'm curious, Martin, were some gods and goddesses more important than others? It's clear from the written evidence that different individuals and communities did at times have particular devotion to a particular deity. In the sagas, many of which are written uh, in the 13th century in Iceland, there are several characters who have particular loyalty to a particular god or goddess. One of these is the main character named Hrafnkel in Hrafnkel's saga. And this character is so dedicated to the god Freya that he's nicknamed Freya's Gothi in Old Norse, which means Freya's chieftain. So there's an intimate connection. But it's also clear that not all characters have such a firm devotion to one god. And in Egil's saga, for example, Egil Skallagrimsson converts, as it were, from Thor to Odin. Although that might be coloured by Christian ideas of devotion to one particular god. But what's clear, though, is there is overall a fairly clear hierarchy. Among the family of gods called the Aesir, Odin is the highest. Other gods submit to him as children submit to their father. For this reason, he's known as the All-Father. He's married to Frigg, who knows the fate of all people. Below Odin stands Thor. He's the most outstanding of the other gods. Called Thor of the Aesir, he's stronger than any other god or man. Among the Aesir, there are many other gods and goddesses too. For example, Odin's second son, Thor being his first, was Balder. And the other gods and goddesses exist in familial relationships to each other and to him. But it must be said, this looks at times as if a much more disparate and varied belief system has been welded into a coherent family, which we can perhaps address in a moment. Yes, indeed. And that segues perfectly into my next question. My understanding is that the Norse may not have viewed their deities as a unified pantheon of gods and goddesses, such as the ancient Greeks, for example. Is this true, Martin? I would agree with that viewpoint and interpretation. And I would say that this is seen in the two interrelated families of gods and goddesses, the Aesir and the Vanir. Among the Aesir, there are both gods and goddesses. Properly speaking, the Aesir are the gods and the Asenir are the goddesses. So, for example, the Aesir include gods like Odin, Thor, Loki, Tyre, and the goddesses include people such as Frigg, the wife of Odin, Idun, uh, the keeper of the apples which the gods eat in order to remain young, and others. And many of these gods and goddesses are very familiar to people from the mythology. But we also have another family of gods and goddesses, the Vanir. And the Vanir also include gods and goddesses, male and female. So, for example, Njord, the god of wind, sea and fire. Uh, Freya, the ruler of rain, sun and what grows on the earth. The goddess Freya, who chooses half of all warriors killed in battle, the other half being taken to Odin's hall and drives a chariot drawn by two cats. In the mythology, Njord was given as a hostage to the Aesir as part of the truce that brought peace between the Aesir and the Vanir. His wife is Skadi, who is a giantess, and it's very possible that the Vanir represent an earlier fertility cult that have become incorporated into the later beliefs about the Aesir. In addition to this, we see beings such as the Valkyries, who give an additional female dimension to the Norse mythological world. They are the famous choosers of the slain who live in Valhalla or Valhol, 
but are sent to Earth to collect those warriors chosen by Odin. However, as an intermediary is used to convey Odin's wishes, there's a possibility of these wishes being subverted at times. And Valkyries are often depicted as semi-divine beings, but they can also be royal princesses who decide to take on this role. So we seem to be seeing once separate religious systems welded together, as it were. And at times, I think we can see what we might call the joins. So I think it's not a unified pantheon. I think it's an attempt to create a sense of unity out of varied traditions which have been brought together over time as if they were always united. But I think we can, as it were, see the joins. Do you think there are any popular misconceptions surrounding Norse myth, whether those involve the stories themselves or the historical significance of these tales? There can be an assumption that the mythology as we now have it accurately represents the mythology as it existed in the Viking Age. And there are a number of reasons why we have to be cautious about that. I think that one of the key points that needs to be remembered is that basically all the myths as we now have them were recorded by medieval Christian writers. This occurred mostly, though not exclusively, in Iceland from the 12th and particularly the 13th century onwards. And this placed the recording of the mythology a couple of centuries after the conversion to Christianity, which occurred in Iceland in the year 1000. So that's a challenging thought. So we're seeing it through the lens of later Christian writers. Most of what we know about Norse myths comes from two later medieval sources, the 13th century Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda. The Prose Edda, also known as Snorra Edda, or the Younger Edda, is widely believed to have been written by Snorri Sturluson, an Icelandic chieftain in the early 13th century, whereas the Poetic Edda is a collection of anonymous Old Norse poems which focus on Norse mythology and the Germanic world of the heroes and the gods. Although it was not written until the 1270s in Iceland, it is widely accepted that it records poems from before the conversion to Christianity. But all of this has a number of implications. For example, Snorri describes the movement of Odin and his brothers from their homeland of Troy to Scandinavia, where they set up their own kingdom. And this clearly was designed to link the Scandinavian pagan past, not only with the biblical past, but also back to the classical past, which was socially acceptable within medieval Christian society. Other stories make the homeland northeast of the Black Sea which again shows us complexity in the origins. And the narrative is concerned with the seeming greatness of Odin. But here, for Snorri, he's not portrayed as a warrior god, but as an ancient man to whom people wrongly, from a Christian perspective, obviously, because Snorri was a Christian, began to offer worship and sacrifices. In contrast to this central role of Odin, the character of Thor is rather neutralised by Snorri. And Thor is placed in the Norse divine genealogy in a way that seems to diminish his importance compared to that of Odin. Now, since Thor was seen as a counterforce to Christ by many Christian missionaries, it may be that, as Odin was originally perceived perhaps as being less powerful and potent in the mind, that it was safer to promote him as an analogue to Christ. And that may be true of other aspects of the mythology too, as it was recorded in Christian Iceland. What is consistent across all the sources, however, are the names of the gods and goddesses. And we can be fairly certain that these were the deities that the people of early medieval Scandinavia, 
and the Norse diaspora worshipped. But we cannot be completely certain of the exact belief system surrounding it. And the stories, though transmitted through Christian writers, still provide significant amounts of information concerning traditions associated with these gods and goddesses. But finally, we sometimes assume a uniformity to Norse mythology across time and location by focusing on the myths and legend as we currently have them. And I think that's problematic. Vikings visited Baghdad and settled briefly in North America. The Viking Age spanned a period from the 780s to the late 11th centuries. Consequently, I think we should not assume uniformity across such a wide area and time period. On the other hand, there are common characters, themes and approaches which suggest an inner core of mythology that was generally accepted across most communities in the Viking Age, but lacking an organised, uniform policing priesthood, as it were, or a unified, codified set of mythological literature, I think sometimes we assume uniformity where there was probably not uniformity at the time. At the beginning of today's show, I introduced our sponsor, Norse Tradesman. If you love the Viking Age as much as I do, go ahead and pay them a visit at norsetradesman.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Aside from offering great products, ranging from swords and axes to clothing, pendants, and drinking horns, all handcrafted and rooted in Norse history, mythology, and tradition, Norse Tradesman is passionate, just like I am on this podcast, about the rich history of medieval Scandinavia. It all started with imagination and dreams of a simpler time. The company founder, Neil Goldsmith, grew up conjuring fantastic scenes of adventure, magic, and chivalry while exploring the dense forests of rural New England in the United States. Neil's inspiration, which would go on to become Norse tradesmen, was fueled by a never-ending string of fantasy, history, and historical fiction novels. It seemed that he couldn't get enough of the enchantment and majesty of times long past. Decades later, after visiting his family in Denmark and seeing up close the incredible history of Norse culture, he decided to turn his infatuation into a reality. Enter Norse Tradesman. Norse Tradesman's goal is to transport its patrons back to the enchanting times of our ancestors. Their products display the craftsmanship and authenticity of true Norse tradesmen that fashioned goods with incredible attention to detail. All of their craftsmen use traditional techniques to mimic the function and appearance of medieval Norse crafts. But most importantly, they do not forget the values of the culture that inspired the creation of Norse tradesmen. Honor is of utmost importance with this company and they certainly do not fail you when it comes to personal attention and customer service. As founder Neil Goldsmith has said, Norse tradesmen will never rest until their allies are pleased. So visit Norse Tradesmen at norsetradesmen.com 
or follow the link in this episode's description and save 20% off your order by using the coupon code VIKING. Lose yourself in the magic of times long past by reliving the Viking Age through handcrafted products of remarkable quality and visual appearance. Well, Martin, do you have any particular characters or stories from Norse myth that you find interesting or amusing? I find particularly interesting the mythological complexity of the trickster god Loki, or Loki, and his terrible children. The children of Loki are central to the end of the god's world, and the character of Loki is central to much Norse mythology and to the group dynamics of the gods. Loki is a half-brother of Odin, and they share the same mother. However, while Odin's father was one of the Asir gods, Loki's father was a giant. This means that Loki enjoys the particular distinction and peculiar distinction of belonging to the world of both the gods and the giants in a particularly worrying way, because they're natural enemies of each other. And time and again, we see the father characteristic, the giant characteristic coming out in Loki's character, and that his paternity lies with the giants is significant. It's this uncertainty and conflict between the two sides of Loki's ancestry, which contributes to his complex nature. He's frequently the cause of trouble amongst the gods and goddesses. And the manifestation of Loki's evil nature is also apparent in the monstrous brood he fathers. Fenrir, the wolf, Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, and Hel. These three children of Loki were brought up in Giantland. That's a a signal that there's going to be trouble in future. And Snorri reminds us that all of these children will play an important role in the end battle, with Fenrir consuming Odin, the Midgard serpent killing Thor, and Hel providing her father with the crew of his ship on that terrible day of the twilight of the gods. So I find the characterization of Loki quite intriguing. A trickster god, at times playing a part we would describe as evil, other times much more ambiguous, sometimes being an ally of the gods and using his trickery sometimes against them, sometimes not. So I find his mythological complexity very, very interesting. When it comes to humour, there is a lot of amusing, if if rather rough, humour in the mythology. For example, Loki disguises himself as a mare in order to cheat a giant builder by distracting the stallion of the builder, but then undergoes the indignity of being mated by the stallion and having to give birth to the eight-legged horse Schleipnir, who becomes Odin's horse. And we're clearly meant to find that amusing, and it is a bizarre image. We see Odin disguised as Harbard, Greybeard, engaging in a battle of insults with Thor, who, despite his strength, is bested by Odin's cunning. And in the story, Thor never guesses the real identity of the one mocking him. But the byname Greybeard alerts the hearer and reader to what is going on. So we're meant to understand it and think, yeah, we know it. But Thor doesn't get it. Thor doesn't understand what's going on. It's obviously meant to be amusing. And it is quite intriguing. Well, sometimes there's humour with a twist, such as when Thor is bested in the hall of King uh, Utgarda Loki, beaten in an eating contest by a being who later is revealed to be an embodiment of fire. It's no wonder that fire could consume more than Thor. And then one of Thor's companions is outrun by a being who later turns out to be Thought. Uh, Thought can outrace any of us. 
we see a drinking horn and then Thor takes it. He drinks it, but he cannot empty the drinking horn. Why? Because it leads to the sea. But we are told that the sea level dropped a bit while Thor was drinking. Then as a cat, he cannot lift because afterwards we discover it's the Midgard serpent in disguise. And then an old woman out wrestles him. What's going on? We're all wondering what's going on. And then we discover it's because she is old age and nobody can out wrestle age. Time will best all of us in the end. So it's funny, but it also makes some serious points, too. And and I like that element of the humour. Some of the other humour is a lot coarser, though, and one has to admit that. The Norse were certainly fans of that sort of grim humour, which makes reading the tales all the more interesting. Well, Martin, I'm very curious. Tell us a little bit about the process of writing your book, Tales of Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends. What did that look like? You know, what were you setting out to do when you wrote this book with your co-author, Hannah? Well, it arose out of my personal interest in medieval history and culture. And I had written on the subject, particularly from an Anglo-Saxon perspective, on a couple of occasions. So it arose out of my personal interest in early medieval history and culture, but also a shared interest with Hannah, who's my eldest daughter, who also has a personal interest and her academic work as well. She has a first class degree in Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic studies from Cambridge University and an M. Phil from there, too. Also earlier, I'd written a book entitled A Brief Guide to Celtic Myths and Legends. And Hannah and I thought it would be fun and challenging to turn our focus to the Norse, to this earlier medieval Scandinavian culture. Now, there are many scholarly translations and also freely written and engaging paraphrases. So we decided that the particular character of the book that we wanted to write would be to group the myths into related areas and to retell the stories in a way that we hope is engaging. But it's not a new translation, although I I must add, Hannah does read Old Norse. But our aim was also to include at the beginning of each chapter an overview of the themes the values, etc., that are involved in the stories that follow, and also their sources, so that readers can appreciate their significance, how the themes connect, and can in fact track them down to their individual sources, in particular manuscripts, if they want to. We were also aware it can sometimes be daunting for modern readers, some modern readers, to disentangle related stories from the way that they're combined within the medieval source material. And our aim was to identify related themes to do with the origins of the cosmos, for example, to do with the behavior of Loki, for example, to do with relationships between the different families of the gods, and to extract them from these medieval sources and to combine them into related blocks while making it clear from where we had got this information. And so that way, the reader can see coherent chunks of a common mythological strand, but we've teased those out pulled those out sometimes from quite complicated source material. A little bit like a a paleontologist might strip back the matrix of surrounding rock to expose the fossils embedded within, or even sometimes might combine fossils in order to give somebody an understanding of what the original creature looked like, while admitting the fossils came from different parts and different areas of rock. So we kind of saw ourselves as being a little bit like literary paleontologists, perhaps. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, if I may just follow up, Martin, were your, um, well, of course, I'm sure you used many sources while writing the book, but what was it like handling the primary sources that you mentioned earlier, the prose edda and the poetic edda? You know, what was it, because those sources can often be ambiguous. I mean, 
the poetic Edda, there's a lot of ambiguity, as I just said, obscurity, you know, things not really lining up throughout the poems, the different poems. And then, of course, the prose Edda presents its own complexities, the Christian bias of, you know, Snorri Sturluson. So could you just tell us a little bit about what it was like, you know, working through those sources? Working through the sources was both extremely interesting and also at times challenging. So there are some excellent modern translations of the Norse myths, and we were greatly assisted by those. As I said, Hannah can read the Norse myths in their original Old Norse, which clearly added depth and nuance Mm. to our exploration. I was very fortunate enough to look at some of the primary material in the Culture Museum in Reykjavik in Iceland. And that was fascinating to actually look at these medieval manuscripts and actually think, you know, these are actually quite close to the time of the recording of the mythology. But one of the things we were very conscious of was, as I say, there isn't always a coherency with some of the strands. There are sometimes contradictions and there are sometimes layers. And so one of the things we did was we combined related myths and strands that clearly were part of a common thread into a coherent whole in order to make that clear to the reader. But we also explained where there were alternative viewpoints as well. So at some points in the book, we will say, but other traditions say it this way, just to alert the reader to the fact that there isn't a common, let's say, mythological explanation of the origins of the cosmos, for example. Or other times, we will say, we find this in these manuscripts, but in these manuscripts, there's a slightly different ending to the story, and it ends in this way. So where we felt that the themes were related and sort of meant to be together, but had simply been taken apart to make a point in the various books that were written, particularly by Snorri Sturluson, we brought them back together again and said, we think these are all part of a common story. But where there were differences, we admitted that and said, well, actually, there isn't a coherency on this. There isn't a consistency, just so the reader can realize that it is complicated. That's excellent. And of course, I just encourage everyone listening to the podcast to pick up a copy of the book, Mm. Tales of Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends. And you can get a copy of the book via the link in the description of this episode. My final kind of two-part question for you, Martin. How did you discover the fascinating world of Norse myth? And then why do you think that this mythology is so popular these days? I mean, we talk about it on the podcast all the time, from hit TV shows to best-selling books. There's just this sort of like renaissance of interest in Viking Age Mm. and Norse myth topics. But I guess I'll leave it at that. How did you discover this world, and why do you think it's so popular? I personally have been interested in early medieval history and mythology since my school days. (laughs) It's curious the things that get you into history, isn't it? Yes. Um, while it's not Scandinavian, my surname, Wittock, W-H-I-T-T-O-C-K, is one of only 10% of modern British surnames that date from before 1066. It's a medieval surname that's derived from an Anglo-Saxon personal name, as it so happens. And so I got quite fascinated by this, this world, this, this pre-1066 world, as it were. And of course, in the British Isles, there's a hugely complicated interaction between the Anglo-Saxon world, the Norse world being part of an Anglo-Danish empire. So Anglo-Saxon England really brings together Scandinavia and the Anglo-Saxon history in a quite complicated way. And so that got me personally interested in the whole issue of the relationship between the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons. Then I stepped back from that and got even more interested in the wider diaspora, because of course, the more you look at it, the more fascinating it is. 
as I say, we have Arabic sources talking about Vikings turning up in Baghdad on camels. I mean, you know, what's not to be fascinated by? You know, <laughs> we, you know we, we find things on Newfoundland and we realise, yes, they, they reached their centuries before Columbus. I mean, it is really, it is really extraordinary. So I found the interconnected Germanic world was one that I was very, very interested in for a very long time. And because Anglo-Saxons and North were part of a related but still contrasting Northwest European culture in the early medieval period, I found it fascinating to compare and contrast the different histories and mythologies of the people involved. And as I say, there was there was this curious kind of fossilization of the early medieval period in my own surname that got me into it when I was just a kid. But why is it so popular? Why is it so popular? I think it's popular for a range of reasons. Firstly, it's the mythology of the Vikings. And the Vikings are extraordinarily popular and challenging and dramatic. You know, when we see warriors with names like, you know, Thorfinn, Skull Splitter, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to meet him on a dark night, but you would like to know more about him. You know, when you see somebody whose name is Blood Axe, surname is Blood Axe, like Eric Blood Axe, you suspect he wasn't called that because he was good with the children. Um, <laughs> but you still think, I'd like to know more about what lies behind this world. So I think the mythology of the Vikings are fascinating. But I think also we become much more interested now in the more nuanced world mm-hmm. of the Vikings. So, for example, you know, your skull splitters and your blood axes. I mean, these are the elite. But we're much more interested now, much more informed now about Viking women, about Viking agriculture, about Viking, Viking traders. And so the Vikings are immensely interesting at all sorts of social levels. And so I think we then think, well, what's going on in their minds? So I think the mythology of the Vikings takes us into that world at all its different social levels of men and women, of all sorts of complexities of the two, different relationships between these people. And I think that's the first thing. We're fascinated by Vikings. We want to know what's going on in their head. Secondly, the stories are so dramatic. I think this explains their appearance in reworkings as varied as Wagner's operas and J.K. Rowling's Werewolf, uh, Fenrir Greyback in Harry Potter. I think they're dramatic, they're sometimes shocking, but they are always engaging. Thirdly, there's a grim inevitability in the road to Ragnarok and the disaster that overcomes the gods and goddesses at the hands of the giants and the force of destruction. And that also appeals to the same strand of human nature that is fascinated by disaster movies and threats of global catastrophe. Finally, the stories have found a global audience through modern reworkings of them. And that in itself generates yet even more interest. In films adapted from the Marvel comic superhero Thor, have publicised a link to North mythology of the Thunder God to many other people, who, many people who otherwise wouldn't have come across North mythology. And it stimulates interest. What's behind that? What's going on? The Middle Earth of Tolkien, as seen in both The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, heavily indebted to Norse Germanic mythology. I think they have had an influential PR on their behalf in all these different factors and it certainly worked to their advantage. Yes, indeed, and I have to agree with all of those points, Martin. It is very fascinating, and people just cannot get enough Vikings in Norse myth. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I have sincerely enjoyed this conversation. And again, everybody who's listening, please purchase a copy of Martin's book, Tales of Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends. Please do check that out. Martin Widock, thanks again for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. Please join us here again for another episode. <laughs>